I think even in the context of studying business and studying the gaming business, we tend to gravitate towards the technically extremely impressive types of games that are very deep and have a lot of complexity to them. So like the AAA type of games, the Dark Souls, the Elder Scrolls, the World of Warcrafts. But I think something that is extremely overlooked is a lot of people don't have that patience. Uh, actually, the market for extremely involved and highly technical and highly difficult games is very small compared to the market for casual games, the market for lowbrow games. I think people always forget or underrate the lowbrow because they aspire rightly to be intelligent, to look great among their peers, to create the games of the year that will make them uh, smart among their peers. But I think the lowbrow gets a lot of reach just by definition because you are catering to the common denominator and also the people who just don't have that much energy right at the end of their day or they're just tired they just want to relax and kick back with something casual and then not think too much that is the lowbrow and uh, i think this story is very indicative of where the underlooked opportunities can come from. This is the, the lowbrow game that we're going to talk about at the beginning is Deer Hunter, which is not something I've ever played, but apparently is one of the top selling games. It was created by a Walmart buyer and it was created by a on commission from a second rate game studio, which is fascinating. And this leads its origins directly all the way to Snake, which was probably the most installed game ever on the Nokia phone. Now this story starts right from the beginning, so I'm going to play it in with the intro of the podcast because why not? It's such a good podcast. Please go subscribe. It is fantastic. Hello and welcome to the GameCraft Podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Lasky. I'm Blake Robbins. And this is a limited series about the history of the video game business. Episode 3, The Calculus of Fun. How casual games went from a budding industry to dominating all of gaming. In this episode, we're going to be talking broadly about the mobile business. And just as a byproduct of that, we're also going to talk about the casual business because it's really hard to talk about one without the other. The the casual business is so intertwined with the mobile business over the 20-year period that we're going to be talking about. Mitch, I'm, I'm excited for this one. Mobile is obviously an area that you and I talk a lot about, primarily actually through the lens of advertising and analytics. It's super interesting to think about, you know, what role maybe analytics played back in those days. Like, what was casual games like in the earliest days? Because I, I have no idea what the earliest casual games are. In my mind, it might be Pac-Man or, or something like that or the arcade games. What role did analytics play? Did it play any role at that time? Actually, it played a really important role. And there's a really interesting story to be told about this because I think the casual games business owes a lot to a really unlikely hero. There was a man named Robert Westmoreland who was really the champion of the casual games business and in a lot of ways created the world we currently live in where the mobile casual business represents roughly half of the video game industry. That wasn't always the case. And in a lot of ways, we owe that to Robert Westmoreland. Hmm. So who was this guy? Robert Westmoreland, he started his career back in the late 80s in Texas, and he was working at the series of now forgotten retailers like Computer City and Babbage's and places like that that, you know, people my age remember, but that are sort of lost to the sands of time. 
And he was a thing called a buyer. And in the retail speak of the packaged goods era, a buyer was basically a guy who acts as sort of a membrane between the publishers and the consumers. So he was he worked for the retailer, but he basically looked at what the publisher's catalogs were and tried to understand what his audience wanted and then would buy the product from the publishers in enough quantity to fulfill the demand that was being generated by his customers. So that was the function of the buyer. So buyers were pretty important, right? Because they were kind of at this nexus between supply and demand, and they were gatekeeping in a lot of ways what products were getting into retail. So in 1995, Westmoreland moves to Walmart, the giant retailer, and joins the big box retailers who were now kind of muscling their way into this market. Back before 1995, Really, computer software retailing had been the domain of kind of mom and pop shops and some of these small regional retailers. But starting in 95, I think the big box retailers really saw the opportunity. And so Walmart, Target, Best Buy, other companies like that started to kind of get into this market. And Walmart hired Westmoreland as their video game buyer. So Westmoreland comes in and at Walmart, you know, Walmart is a big retailing operation, right? They're everywhere. They're maybe the largest in the United States. Probably, you know, now Amazon is bigger, but in terms of brick and mortar, they're probably the largest retailer in the United States. So he's there. And as the buyer for games at Walmart, he's got access to unbelievable data from all of these stores all over the United States. And he's looking at the sales data and he starts noticing something really interesting, which is Among the best-selling games that Walmart has on their shelves, sure, they included things like Warcraft and Command & Conquer and MechWarrior, the things that the big publishers were pushing into retail in that era. But he also saw that there was this other kind of game, this more casual, more accessible, less expensive game that was also doing really, really well. Okay, so he's looking at all this data. You know, what does he actually do? Does Does he create a game? Does he actually do anything with that? Westmoreland was a really ambitious guy, and he, armed with all of this data that suggested that there was this underserved market for cheaper, more casual games, he goes to GT Interactive. GT Interactive is a publisher we talked about in episode one. They had the id software rights for Doom and Quake, and so they were well known to the big box retailers. Uh, Westmoreland goes, and he commissions GT to create a game for the casual audience. And GT, interestingly, had just acquired this small publisher called Wizardworks. And they were going to do a line of these lower-priced games. At the time, there were these things that were called 5-foot-10 packs. They're <laughs> ridiculous. It's almost like you were selling bubble gum or trading cards, but you would buy 10 CD-ROMs in a thing that hung on a single tag, and it was five feet long, the the packaging. So it was a ludicrous packaging thing, but it was a way to take extra shelf space and turn it into something that they could make money on. And basically, they were recycling bargain bin titles that had maybe failed, and they were remaindered. And so the publishers just had these discs lying around, and they would basically give them to Walmart so they could be put into these five-foot-ten packs. So that was a thing. And so GT had gone out thinking, oh, we're going to get into this market, and they'd bought this company called Wizardworks. And Wizardworks took the Walmart commission and they went and found this tiny little publisher in, in Indiana called Sunstorm. And they gave him 125 grand. And Sunstorm came up with this game called Deer Hunter. Deer Hunter, again, in those days, it was like a shooting gallery game. It was basically like as simplistic and nonsensical as the Carney games where the ducks are on the little mechanical thing and you're shooting them with the air gun. It was that lame. 
despite the ridicule of everybody, myself included at the time, who when we first looked at it at Activision, we were like, this is barely a game. The thing just blew up. And Westmoreland knew exactly what he was doing. And he basically got this thing on the shelves at Walmart on an exclusive basis in 1997. And it sold millions and millions of units. It's a perfect example of what we were talking about at the beginning, where data-driven decision-making is such a key part of the mobile games business now, or what we know as the casual games business. But this has to be one of the first examples of someone looking at the data and actually getting it right. It's hard to describe how shocking it was at the time because you got to remember we were coming out of an era in the video game business when the video game designer developer was really considered an artist. I mean, it goes back to Electronic Arts's famous like We See Farther advertisement with the moody black and white that they took of their quote unquote software artists who, you know, were all looking very artistic there in their designery garb and it just blew that whole myth out of the water. I mean, this was 1997 was the year as we just talked about in episode one, when John Romero was getting Ion Storm started and he was literally positioning himself as a rock star. And yet here, one of the biggest games of the year was created on commission by a suit at Walmart who had gone to a B-level publisher who themselves went to a C-level developer to just churn out this product that they knew there was a market for because they had the data. It's a perfect example of even to this day where people don't really look at mobile uh, maybe as seriously as they do the hardcore games. But it turns out everybody is a gamer. And they clearly identified that at that time where there was a massively underserved audience. And that's just incredible. It really woke the industry up in a remarkable way because other things were happening around that time, but everybody just looked at them as one-offs, right? I mean, Mattel had Barbie's fashion designer back in 1996, which did really, really well. But people were like, oh, it's Barbie, you know, it's a one-off, it's not replicable, whatever. And Hasbro had taken some of their board game properties and started putting them onto the computer. And again, they were doing really, really well with these products. But again, people were kind of brushing them off and it's like, oh, that's not serious. That's not really the computer games business. But when Deer Hunter blew up, that really got everybody's attention. So what happens after that? Do they continue to replicate that or do a bunch of people start copying? What, like how soon after do we start to see the rise of casual games? Probably the most important part of the casual games story in the late 90s was how it harmonized or didn't harmonize with what the executives in these video game companies were telling Wall Street. So you had a bunch of public video game publishers, Activision, Electronic Arts, and others, and they had been pointing at the future growth of the video game business. Frankly, given what's happened to the video game business, I don't think they could have even imagined how much the video game business grew in those days. But they were always saying to the Wall Street analysts, hey, this is going to be a mass market business. Everybody's a gamer. You've, you're going to see this sort of layering of audience as the old older generation continues to play games and the younger generation is born playing games. And it sounded really good to the Wall Street analysts who could look at their five to 10 year projections for these stocks and really compound the value of, of these companies. But in reality, these publishers, and I can speak from experience since I was there running one of these studios, we were doing very little to serve an audience outside of the core. And when we finally saw things like Deer Hunter and Barbie's Fashion Designer and the Hasbro games come to market and really blow doors, we had to do something. We had to respond. So at Activision, we went off and we acquired this Minneapolis company called Head Game Software that had a relationship with Best Buy. 
And we started to make casual games. We licensed Cabela's, the big hunting retailer. So we did a clone of, uh, <laughs> of Deer Hunter called Cabela's Big Game Hunter. And, you know, Electronic Arts in 1997, 1998 was driven to acquire Maxis, who at the time was kind of on the edge between being a casual game company and being a core game company. They had things like SimCity and others. Uh, this was pre-The Sims. This was, you know, back in the SimCity days. So they acquired that company back in 1997 and started to, again, make games that were designed more for a mass market perspective. And so really by the end of that decade, by 1999, the whole market had kind of flipped. There were only three of the top-selling PC games by units that were traditional core games in 1999. Seven of the top ten were either children's games or fully casual games. And that included Deer Hunter three. So it was already on its third sequel. So that's where we ended up. That's where we were in 1999. And that's the change in the casual games business that was really initiated by Robert Westmoreland's ability to study the data at Walmart and to understand that the audience for games was way bigger than the audience that the traditional publishers really imagined. Yeah. I've never heard that story before, but it's one of those things where it's so clear in, in hindsight, that the gaming market was much bigger. You know, like you said, the Wall Street story of everybody's a gamer, but clearly the incumbents weren't actually acting on that until you have a buyer at Walmart actually act on that, which is absolutely incredible. Obviously, the analytics and data-driven side of this is one piece. We now know, we're privileged to know in 2022, that mobile plays a huge role in this. At what point do we start to see casual and mobile blend? Well, obviously... You know, you had this phenomenon going on on the PC side, and Microsoft even understood this on a certain level. I mean, Windows came bundled with Minesweeper and Solitaire. So the idea that, that casual games were viable should have been obvious, really, given the success of those products. But in some ways, the PC was still kind of a geeky thing. I mean, yeah, it was going more mass market. The internet was driving it into people's homes. But remember that between 1995 and 1999, PC gaming was still a little bit of a fringe phenomenon in the larger sense of things. Consoles were still way more important in that era and the like. So in a lot of ways, casual games was a big market kind of in search of a platform. Hmm. And mobile was the perfect platform. And that and the, the marriage between casual gaming and mobile is so obvious in retrospect. So the story, I guess, of casual gaming moves from the Midwest, where Robert Westmoreland was plying his trade down in, in Arkansas, where Walmart is headquartered, and heads across the Atlantic Ocean, really to the Nordic countries, and in particular to Finland, where Nokia, the cell phone manufacturer, is getting ready to take the world over with mobile technology. The early cell phone days for me, I, I was barely even born at the time, but I remember Nokia playing a huge role at that time. I'm, I'm curious to hear where this story goes. So Nokia, you know, was a big conglomerate. It, would, it had been around for like 150 years. One of these sort of old companies that found a new market. They were making a lot of traditional telecom equipment stuff. And they saw this opportunity in mobile and they had a real sense of that Nordic design. You know, starting, I think, all the way back in the mid 90s, like 93, 94, they'd come out with these candy bar phones, like the, the famous 2110, which was one of these iconic phones that you see it and you, you immediately understand it as a Nokia product. So that started to happen back then. And then around the middle of the decade, they came out with the 6110, which 
for those of us who were in the mobile business, and we'll get to that part of the story because I spent a long time in the mobile business, the 6110 was really a transformative product because unlike any phone before it, it included a really good processor. It included a 32-bit ARM processor. And so for the first time, you could actually run legit software in a mobile phone. Now, obviously at the time, that quote-unquote legit software was pretty much just a shitty calendar application or your contacts for making your mobile phone calls or your text messages, etc. But the potential was there in the phone for more. So that leads us to the second hero of the story. We've we've already learned about Robert Westmoreland, the, the Walmart buyer who kind of initiated the casual games business here in the United States and on the PC. There was a similar character at Nokia who's gone unnoticed for all of these years, much like Robert Westmoreland, and that is Tanyeli Armanto. Who was this guy? So Tanyeli Armanto was the guy who did Snake on the Nokia phone, created the game that was maybe played more than any other game in history because that game shipped on every single handset that Nokia created that was capable of running software like it. The Nokia 6110, if I remember correctly, is, is that the candy bar, like blue one? Is, is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Oh my gosh. I, I think I even had one of those. It was probably seven or eight years old at that point when I finally got my phone. But my gosh, I, I remember playing Snake at that time. So yeah, they brought in Tanyeli, who was part of this group that was going to design all of these new applications for this new 32-bit ARM processor, right? They were going to update all of their internals for these calendaring programs, et cetera, for the 6110. And they asked him, hey, maybe we'll do a game. So he went off. He found this kind of public domain play pattern, the snake play pattern in which the the snake moves around, this little pixelated snake moves around, and as it eats the little dots, it grows in length, and therefore the constraints of moving it around the screen become greater and greater the longer it gets. Very, very simple play pattern, very addictive, very repeatable. He got to work, and he built this game, basically, and it was preloaded on 350 million handsets. Oh so gosh. really, in a way here, casual gaming found the platform, and Snake was that game that sort of married the two of them together. And the poor guy really never received a whole lot of credit for this. He was interviewed, I remember, uh, maybe 10 years later when they were doing a, the 10th anniversary of the 6110 as a kind of a corporate PR fest. And they name-checked him in a press release or whatever. And he worked at Nokia for like 15, 16 years, right? Like just, he was a lifer. But he in many ways was the father of mobile gaming. I had never heard of him uh, prior to this. And uh, honestly, it's a travesty that we don't know about him uh, because he did play such a critical role. And I, I think even more importantly, Snake, it was a perfect game for the mobile phone. To his credit, he discovered a play pattern that was perfect for that screen at that time. And those lessons are still, you know, we, we learn from that and of embracing the medium. I'm going to say that again. 350 million installs of this one game in I played it, you played it, it's Snake. We have no idea who invented it, and now the story is told. 